Welcome, everyone, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Carolyn Brynick. Carolyn was diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukemia in 1994, five days before her 14th birthday. She was in the eighth grade. Her treatment consisted of two and a half years of chemo and days of cranial radiation. She finished treatment at the end of her sophomore year of high school. Carolyn has earned her bachelor's degree in zoology from The Ohio State University and a master's degree in recreational therapy from the University of Toledo. Carolyn has worked with pediatric cancer patients in the inpatient, outpatient, and camp setting. Carolyn always knew she had the potential for late effects from her treatments, but what, but what she was not prepared for was that they would come many years later. Carolyn has authored the book, Faith, Hope, and Cancer, The Journey of a Childhood Cancer Survivor, to share her story to all that will listen and why additional funding for research is needed. Welcome, Carolyn, to the podcast. Thank you, Ron, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you and honor to have you. Carolyn, let's start at the beginning. Uh, we want to give people on this podcast a feeling of that, that, that they're going to know what being a child pediatric cancer patient is. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your growing up years before you turned 14. I had a normal childhood. I lived in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio, had, you know, rode my bike. I loved being in nature. Um, animals are my thing. Um, I love stuffed animals. You know, I was your normal child growing up in the 80s. Um, Care Bears, My Little Ponies were my thing. Um, all that 80s uh, paraphernalia, that was, you know, stereotypical me. Um, so I had a really great childhood just growing up, you know, playing with my brother and sister. We had a huge field in our backyard. So just running around in the field, you know, I really had a great life that my parents provided for us. So what was the, what, what were the first signs something was wrong and describe what you endured at home and in school and how others treated you, friends and family? So in November of my eighth grade year, I was at basketball practice and I got need in the back during practice. Um, all of a sudden I had a sharp pain, really didn't think anything of it, just assumed it was because I got need in the back. Um, basically, you know, I asked my coach to take a break and went and got a drink of water. What was alarming was the pain never went away. Um, it remained day after day after day. Um, I actually ended up staying home from school the next day because the, it, my back hurt so badly. And that was the first indicator that something was wrong. Um, my parents took me to the doctor you know, they chalked it up to growing pains or just bad back because bad backs run in the family, you know, so they didn't really think anything of it. I'm pretty sure at the time they did an x-ray, but nothing obviously showed up. And so that pain really stuck around for the next two months. It just progressively got worse and it was a moving back pain. Some days it would be in the lower back, some days the upper back sometimes the right side, sometimes the left side. I never really knew where the pain was going to be and how severe it was. And the problem with that is that it really impacted my everyday life. I couldn't sit in a chair. I couldn't ride in a car, sneeze, laugh, sleep in a bed. Everything I did caused me pain. And so I just became, I started just 
not to want to do anything. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to be around people because I couldn't do the things I used to be able to do. The pain basically ruled my life. And my classmates didn't know what was going on. Some of them honestly thought I was faking it because back pain doesn't move. My siblings didn't believe that the back pain was real. They thought I was kind of making it up. And my parents were really concerned because they kind of were like, okay, well, what the heck is going on? Like, we keep taking you to the doctor and nobody has any answers for what's going on. So I don't think any, nobody honestly realized how bad it was because I kind of hid the pain from my parents. So that way they thought that I was getting better when I knew something wasn't right. What prompted you, Carolyn, to write, write your book, Faith, Hope, and Cancer? I had wanted to, when the internet became available, um, I basically started writing cancer anniversary emails. So every year on January 25th, I would send an email to my family and friends saying, hey, remember to celebrate life. And that, those emails, many people year after year are like, oh my gosh, Carolyn, you need, to, you need to tell your story. I was never a writer, never considered myself a writer, nothing. And then in 2016, my husband gave me the luxury of being able to quit my job. And basically two weeks after quitting my job, I started writing for just for, I don't know why I sat down to write it. And within two weeks, I had a rough draft done, first rough draft. And it really got to the point where I wanted to share my story because I knew it could provide hope for at least, you know, others going through what I went through. My goal in life has always been to, if I can make one person smile a day, I had a good day. Yeah. And so when it comes to writing this book, my, my theory was if this book can help at least one person writing, it was worthwhile and everybody else is just icing on the cake. And so I just wanted to help people understand that you're not alone with what you're going through. Others have been there before you. We have survived. We're paving the way to make the world a better place for cancer survivors and to help people understand that, you know, cancer doesn't just affect the individual. It really does affect the family, the friends and the entire dynamic of their lives. I have to say, I read the book and I can't believe you wrote that thing in two weeks. It was an awesome book. Uh, It held my interest and I I would strongly recommend anybody uh, pick up a copy. It's a great book. It will hold your interest and just just a wonderful book. Uh, tell us about the things cancer took away from you overall, and then we will get into the specifics later on. Just just overall, what, what, did, what did it take away from you? It took away, first of all, my teenage years. I really had no teenage years. Um, I was diagnosed at age 13, five days before my 14th birthday, and I didn't finish chemo until I was 16 years old. And by the time I finished chemo, you know, everybody, I didn't have anything in common with my peers. So it took away my teenage years. It took away my high school years, um, you know, not having things again in common with my high school classmates that carried into college, not really having things in common with people in college. And then it took away my friends um, who were in school with me because they didn't know how to deal with what I was going through. They didn't know how to cope with what I was going through. And I didn't know how to communicate to them. It's taken away so many friends of mine who have died from cancer. Um, It's, you know, taken that away. And it's just kind of taken, um, there's just a piece of you that 
kind of dies when you hear that diagnosis of cancer. You know, I will, I only lived a quote unquote normal life for 13 years. Every other year, you know, cancer is, is part of my journey. You know, you can't leave it behind. Um, as much as you want to, you can't. Yeah, I definitely understand. I'm going through the cancer journey myself for the second time. Uh, and really, uh, that's why we're doing this podcast with you. We're trying to give a perspective to people out there that have not been through that journey. And hopefully we'll never have to go through that journey. But when you're going through that journey, you really realize uh, what it does take away and how different it is. And like you said, uh, people look at you differently. Eh? You know, not everyone, but people do. Uh, and it, it, it's just it's just a different scenario. Uh, how did cancer change your fi- your family dynamics? And tell us how cancer affects family members differently. Um, as far as my family went, my sister was in college. She was a freshman in college when I was diagnosed. So she was the most removed. Um, she only knew what my parents told her. Um, I communicated very little with my sister at that time. Uh, my brother was in a junior in high school. And basically, my parents tried to keep his life as normal as possible. You know, they gave him the car that he could drive to, co- to, to school. They didn't want his life disrupt- disrupted by what I was going through. Um, my, my mom and dad, you know, my dad was the one who worked. You know, he went to work to pay the bills because healthcare was a priority. Um, you know, when I was in the hospital, he would come to the hospital after work every day and read the newspaper and just be there with me. But my mom was really the one at the front line. She was the one who quit being a music teacher to basically become my full-time nurse and was that full-time nurse for the first year. And at, during that time, we basically became best friends. And so that's kind of how my family adjusted and was affected by the cancer. Uh, Talk to us about the emotional and social side effects of cancer. Cancer can be very isolating. Um, Cancer is a time when you realize who are your friends and who aren't your friends. Um, Everybody, the, the people that you expect to be by your side, sometimes are the ones that are not. And the ones who you never would have expected are the ones that come out of the woodwork and support you. It's a strange phenomenon, and I'm not the only one who's gone through that. And so what it can do is it can leave you feeling very isolated, especially when you're my age and I had to stop going to school and get a tutor. So I didn't. I want to take a moment out of the podcast to tell you about our podcast supporter, guest, multiple time bestselling author, Sylvester Jenkins III whose new book, From Combat to Combat, How to Conquer the Battles of Adversity, has just been released. Sylvester is a combat veteran, retired first sergeant, which included four tours of duty in Iraq and one in Afghanistan, which spanned 21 years of service. Sylvester is no stranger to adversity. Growing up in a low-income single-parent home, surrounded by gang violence, struggling in school, enduring a painful divorce while in the military, having drug and alcohol issues, suicidal ideations, and suffering from PTSD. Beating the odds with no luck but all hard work and determination, he can now call himself a combat veteran, first-generation college graduate, accomplished speaker, and best-selling author. With the credentials I just spoke of, this book is written by a man who has experienced real adversity, and his writing on the subject is true and authentic. 
No one searches for adversity. Bad experiences are simply a part of life. Your struggle may come in different forms and may be given one of many different names, rejection, a broken dream, or heartbreak, which creates battlefields as anxiety, depression, adverse childhood experiences, and PTSD. Yet, how many of us know how to prevent our lives from spiraling out of control when we encounter traumatic events that threaten our safety, careers, emotions, health, or relationships? Sylvester passionately shares glimpses of his journey staying grounded in the face of disappointment, criticism, and intense hardships. He provides readers with a look into what it takes to not just overcome adversity and survive, but to thrive. Are you feeling overwhelmed and exhausted from juggling it all? Pressure from work and home, managing expectations and everyone else's needs. Do you have dreams you would like to pursue but don't know where to begin? Or do you believe you lack the discipline or mindset required to pursue and achieve your objectives? This is a pivotal moment in your life. This is the difference between those who overcome obstacles in life and get the success they want and others who can only dream of it. By picking up this book, you are proving to yourself that you are taking the first step toward attaining your goals. The contents of the book are designed in a way that the reader finds it easy to read step-by-step with a short size to keep the interest of the reader. The book provides actionable strategies for making peace with past experiences, living in the present, and planning for a great future. Armed with this knowledge, we can learn to manage our feelings and respond to devastating events with the skills to seek healthy coping options and change our lives for the better. The book is based on the belief that you have the ability to make changes in your life. That is, you should be willing to try various exercises and see how they fit for you. See how you can tailor things to make them work for your life. The language and words of the book are kept simple to make things easier and better for people of all ages to read. Make today the day you unlock your inner warrior and become victorious. The book is available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook formats from Amazon, iTunes, and the website sylvesterjenkins.com. All ordering information will be listed in the podcast notes. See my classmates. I didn't see my friends. And that was isolating. This was before social media. This was before cell phones, you know, so yeah. I really didn't have a time, a chance to, you know, talk to them. Um, and it just became a very, a time where I was just alone, kind of dealing with what I was going through on my own. And then as a survivor, there weren't a whole lot of resources out there for survivors when I was, you know, out of treatment. You know, organizations didn't exist until about 14 years after I was diagnosed. So even trying to navigate the world as a, as a survivor, I was trying to figure that out on my own, which is why camp was so important for me because I could talk to and relate to other kids who went through chemo and cancer treatment the same age I went through. Yeah. Uh, can you describe those high school years, uh, sophomore to graduation? Uh, dealing with your peers. I know they gave you a nickname, Leukemia Girl. Yeah, you know, so I got the name Leukemia Girl. And, you know, at the time, it I was upset about it. But now I honestly can laugh about it because I do find it kind of funny. You know, I I was at a high school football game. And one of my classmates, she was actually in my class when I was diagnosed, um, had known her since first grade. I had heard through the grapevine that she my, she was calling me Leukemia Girl. And I kind of was like, okay, well, that's a little ridiculous. And if you knew me at the time, and if you know me now, like I don't, 
put up with that kind of stuff. So I actually hunted her down at the, you know, football game. And I, you know, asked, I was like, Hey, I hear you're calling me leukemia girl. I'm like, look, you have every right to call me that I have leukemia and I'm a girl. All I ask is that if you're going to do it, you call me leukemia girl to my face instead of behind my back. And she kind of just turned around and walked away because I think at that point, you know, she regretted doing that. Right. And again, at the time I was upset about it, but now I find it comical that that was my nickname. And, you know, in high school, it was hard for me because my freshman and sophomore year, I basically missed school to go to the clinic for outpatient appointments. You know, everybody knew I was the kid with cancer. And so I kind of felt like people treated me with like fragilely, like they didn't want to hurt me or whatever. Um, I missed the first basically months of freshman year due to being in the hospital for pneumonia. So that crucial time when you're making new friends in high school, I missed. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I got back to school and finished chemo, again, the end of my sophomore year, everybody had already formed their friendships. Everybody had already, you know, joined the clubs that they were going to join. And I kind of was just left. I had just survived cancer. Like I didn't have anything in common with these, you know, with my classmates. And so it was a very kind of lonely time for me. Um, I had friends and, you know, I, you know, I talked to people but I didn't have the close connections that I would have loved to have. But what is shocking now is thanks to social media, I actually talked to a lot of my high school classmates. Oh, um, and I'm actually good friends with some of them that I was never friends with in high school. So it's, you know, I think as I've gotten older, I realize I actually do have more in common with them than I ever knew I had when I was back in high school. Great. You, it, it's in the book. Uh, you, you said you, uh, you talked a lot about your cancer to others, uh, maybe causing them to be uncomfortable around you. Do you have any tips, um, for survivors out there on that subject? Should they be, should they be referring to it a lot or, or what's your, what's your thought process on that? I referred to it a lot because I knew nothing more. Like that's what I had lived through. Um, what I came to realize is everybody views cancer differently. Um, one of the hardest lessons for me was I had a, a roommate in college who, again, I, you know, when you're first freshman, sophomore in college, what do you talk about? What you did in high school? What band or sports did you play in high school? I did none of that. The only thing I did in high school was survive cancer. Right. So that was the only thing I could bring to the table. And I had a class, a roommate who basically come to me years later and she said, look, my mom died of cancer. So for me, cancer meant death. For you, cancer meant life. And it was very hard for her to see that difference. And so I've come to realize that you always have to meet people where they're at. Some people are not going to be able to hear my story and be able to relate because they've had somebody too close to them pass away from it, you know? And so when it comes to sharing your story or talking about it, you know, just be respectful of what you know about the other people. You know, it's okay to tell your story. It's, you know, that's your story and you want to share it, you know, especially when you're, when you just survived, you just want to shout it from the rooftop. I survived cancer. And, you know, just understanding that it's okay that not everybody's going to be respect, you know, 
understand. Yeah. Everybody's got a different perspective on it. You get a master of science degree in recreational therapy. Tell us about you pursuing that degree and how you used it. I basically, my background is in zoology. Again, always loved animals. And I found out through my degree in recreation therapy that I could use animals to help people. And so that was my ultimate reason why getting, why I wanted to get a recreation um, therapy degree. And so I used that primarily again, so I could use my dog, who's a certified therapy dog. She could come to work with me. But in the end, as I was in school, you know, I really wanted to help, you know, pediatric cancer patients. I, I didn't have a recreational therapist or child life specialist when I was going through treatment. And as I went through school, I realized how beneficial that would have been for me going through treatment. Even though I was a teenager, it still would have been beneficial. And so, you know, my goal was always to work in pediatric oncology. And thankfully, I was able to do that for four years. And it was my dream job. I loved helping people, especially when they were first diagnosed, that shock of you have cancer, your child has cancer, helping them understand that just because you have cancer doesn't mean your life has to change too much. You can still do certain things. You just have to do them a little bit differently. You know, you still have, a, you know, you still have the potential of a long life ahead of you. Um, and helping children cope with, you know, getting, you know, a, a central line or a port placed, you know, we use sock monkeys to help kids cope and help them with like medical teaching and stress management and relaxation therapy to help them get through their treatment. Things that I didn't have in place that would have totally helped me yeah. cope with what I was going through. Kelly decided to go with a bald look, similar to mine. <laughs> Tell us why and your experiences with that style. So when I was, you know, it, during treatment, obviously I lost my hair and I loved it. I hated my hair growing up. It was baby fine stick straight hair that you could do nothing with. And so when I lost my hair the first time, I loved it. I actually enjoyed pulling my hair out. And everybody always told me, you know, you have a nice shaped head. That was like the biggest compliment I had ever gotten. In 2009, I heard about the organization St. Baldrick's where you, you know, shave your head and raise money for childhood cancer research. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I want to do it. I skipped the first year um, when I first found out about it because my brother was getting married and I didn't think they would appreciate a bald girl in the wedding pictures. So the next year I decided, you know, to raise money and shave my head. And I had every intention of growing my hair back. I had no intention to keep it short and I shaved it and it was the coldest day of February. And I could, I mean, you could feel the cold every, yeah. you know, shave and I get out of the chair and, you know, they finish shaving my head and I'm walking, you know, off the stage and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you are beautiful. And I'm like, what? I never considered myself beautiful. Like I, that's not a word I ever used to describe myself. And I went into the bathroom to actually look at myself. And for the first time in my life, I felt beautiful. And wow. this was when I was 29 years old. Wow. And I basically fell in love with it. And from then on, I basically kept my hair short because as I look at it, 
God did not intend for me to have hair. I did not have good hair when I was born. When my hair grew back after chemo, it grew back basically the same as before. And if you, you know, beauticians, you know, who I've known my entire life have even say like, look, Carolyn, never have hair again. You look way better bald than you ever did with hair. And so I look at it as, like I said, God didn't intend for me to have hair. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you look great to me. Uh, in your book, you wrote, cancer is not a death sentence, but rather a life sentence that pushes us to live. Can you talk about that? You know, when people first hear the word cancer, death is typically the first thing that comes to mind. Oh my gosh, you're, I'm going to die or my child's going to die. You know, that's the gut reaction. Yeah. But what I've learned is, you know, and I heard somebody, this was not my quote, this was from somebody else. And when I heard this quote, it reminded me that it really is a life sentence because it reminds you how short life is and not to have those bucket lists. Not, you know, if there's something you want to do, go after it now because we're not promised tomorrow. Right. We're promised today and we need to make the best of it. And so it, you know, when you have cancer, it's just this like reminder in the back of your mind of, you know what? I was close to death. So I should take advantage of this opportunity and not let, let, let it pass because I might never have that opportunity again. Yes, I definitely agree with that. May 11th, 2011, you hit rock bottom, depression, and you classify yourself as a functional depression person. What does that mean? So I ended up with depression from everything cancer had taken away from me. Um, a bunch of things happened. I call it the perfect trifecta, which kind of pushed me into this depressive state. And on May 11th, I really did hit rock bottom. And it was the first time that I really was serious about potentially killing myself. And it scared me. It was the first time that I had ever written the word suicide. And that scared me. It was something that I had thought about killing myself, but actually saying and writing the word were two different things. And what people don't realize is you can be a functional depressed person. And what I mean by that is I went to work. I, you know, got up every morning. I went to work. I came home. In my everyday life, you would never know that I was having a battle in my brain fighting suicide basically, you know, 20 hour, hours out of the day. And I would come home from work and that's when it would set in. I would go to my room and I would just cry. For two years, I cried myself to sleep. I didn't I didn't have an appetite. I had nothing. I ate because I had to eat because I knew you have to eat to live. Um, but from the outsider perspective, you would never know that I was depressed at work because when I was at work, I was at work. I was doing what I needed to, to help my patients, my residents. I wasn't at work for me. I was at work for them. And it was only when I was alone and in my own thoughts that that depression immediately set in, like getting in that car to drive home was a whole nother ball game. And that is something that I don't think people realize about depression is it's not always just sitting alone, crying, not wanting to do something. You can go to work and still be depressed and suicidal. Well, usually uh, 
when you have those suicidal ideations, it's, they say it's because you're in pain and you want to get out of the pain. What, what do you think was causing the pain? It was, I, I literally, I had lost, I have a really strong faith. Um, had it, that's what got me through cancer treatment. And honestly, with, when I talk about that perfect trifecta, I had lost sight of God. Um, and I was so overwhelmed by the negative things in my life. The fact that I had, I had a couple of friends who had just died of cancer. Um, I had an aunt who had just died from cancer and I had a friend who lost her boyfriend, um, in a motorcycle accident. And I was so overwhelmed with basically death and negative thoughts that I just couldn't escape my mind. I couldn't find the goodness in the world anymore. And it, you know, I describe it like, you know, quicksand. It just keeps sucking you down into this little depth of despair until finally somebody, you know, sends you a rope to help you crawl out of. And you just are kind of in this quicksand until something happens that pulls you out. Um, and that, you know, I think it was just a combination of various things that caused that pain. Now you, you haven't talked about your depression publicly until recently. Uh, why was that? For many years, I couldn't, um, it was too strong of an emotion. Um, even writing this book, when I wrote the chapter on depression, um, I had to put the book away for two years. That's why it took me so long to actually publish it because I couldn't pick it up um, and reread the chapters because of the emotion that came with it. And there's a stigma attached to, you know, when you say you've had depression and especially when you say, Hey, I've had suicidal thoughts, Um, you know, there's just this stigma attached to it. And so there was an embarrassment factor. um, But I've come to terms with the fact that that's just, now part of my story. Um, I can talk about the depression. I can talk about the suicidal thoughts without breaking into tears. And I'm proud now to say that that's something I've survived. I'm not only a survivor of cancer, but I am a survivor of depression too. Well, this podcast does a lot of interviews with with people uh, along those lines. And we're trying our best along with them uh, to lower, you know, to, to get rid of the stigma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. of mental health issues, uh, which, which is a problem in, in, in this country. Talk about what brought you out of it and words of wisdom for those out there listening, going through this. The best advice I can have is don't give up hope. You know, for me, one of the things I was lacking was a connection to anything. Like I just couldn't connect with anybody. Couldn't connect with my family, my friends, nobody. And so I just kept trying and my final attempt, and and I will say this was a final attempt because I was at my last, you know, end was a friend of mine who I'd known from camp. Um, She was a cancer survivor too. Um, She was taking dance lessons at, you know, Fred Astaire dance studio in Columbus. And she said, Hey, why don't you come and dance with me one night? And I was like, okay, I had nothing to lose at this point. And I just was reaching out for a straw of, you know, finding a friend again. And I went out dancing and Daniel, the dance instructor and owner of the studio, basically, you know, he reached out my hand and said, you know, come dance with me. And I kind of was like, I don't dance. And he's like, 
it doesn't matter. You know, all you have to do is follow. And what he didn't realize at that moment was he literally was giving me the gift of life back. Dance became a, a space where I could be free and not think. Because as a girl, when you're ballroom dancing, you follow. The male is the lead. And so all I had to do was follow somebody. I didn't have to put a thought into it. And through ballroom dancing, I met Pat who immediately welcomed me with open arms into the studio's family, wanted to know who I was, you know, and invite me and, and get to know me. And that was the, the connection I was looking for. And it literally was through ballroom dancing that I basically was able to come out of this. Um, and then on top of that, I had heard a song, it's called All This Time by Britt Nicole, that talks about how all this time God has been by my side. And when I heard that song driving home one day, it really reminded me that even through this depression, God has been by my side like he was when I was going through cancer treatment. And so it re-brought my attention to the fact that God's been with me. He didn't leave me. Right. I just kind of forgot where he was. And so those were the things that brought me out of the depression. Well, that, that ballroom instructor, owner, he was your life raft. He really was. And without, without a doubt. I, you know, years later, I told him that. I wrote him a letter thanking him basically for saving my life. Yeah. What, what other medical issues have you had to endure from your childhood cancer treatments? Aside from the depression, I was diagnosed with osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis eight years after I was diagnosed, um, when I was 22 years old. And so my, basically my, um, the calcium in my bones has been declining since I was 22. And that's mainly due to the high steroids that I was on, um, yeah. during treatment. And then in 2020, I was diagnosed for the first time with basal cell carcinoma, um, on my head. And I've now had two spots removed. And when I've talked to my dermatologist, he said, the reason I have them on my head is due to the cranial radiation I had during treatment as well. And unfortunately, there's nothing I can do to prevent it. Um, he basically said the damage has already been done and, you know, more cancer can form. And so now I'm just a little bit more cautious. You know, obviously I go to the doctor, but I'm the one thing with uh, cranial radiation, what po most people don't realize is your risk of a, anything going wrong, especially a brain tumor, actually increases every year that you survive. And so I'm definitely at a higher risk of a brain tumor because of that. And therefore, I'm a very, you know, aware of my body. I pray I don't ever get a brain tumor. Skin cancer is enough for me. Yeah, um, for sure. But it's a, it's a risk that I now get to live with. Carolyn, talk about uh, your faith going through the cancer journey and everything you went through. How has your faith changed, if any, over the years? I grew up in a in a Catholic home. Um, my, you know, we went to church every Sunday. Um, prayer was a part of my everyday life. Uh, my mom basically taught us, you know, when if you see a beautiful sunset, you thank God for your eyes. If you hear a siren, you pray for the people that siren is for. Um, my grandma probably was the most influential person because she basically gave her worries to God every night. 
when she would say her prayers. And so I grew up with this idea of, you know, God is going to help you get through anything. And that's what helped me through my cancer treatment was the power of prayer. If my stomach hurt, I prayed, you know, God send guardian angels and, you know, in to help, you know, calm my stomach. And literally, honestly, within 10 minutes, my stomach would stop hurting when I would ask, you know, for those prayers. And so for me during treatment, you know, prayer was my go-to coping mechanism you know, that was a big part of it. Christian rock music was my second, you know, big coping mechanism. And over the years, you know, again, during the depression, I kind of forgot who God was, you know, which kept me in that depression. But over the years, I think my, my faith has definitely grown. I didn't, you know, I tell people all the time, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, but I really learned who God was and my relationship with God stemmed from the cancer and what I've lived through. Um, I've experienced miracles. I've experienced, you know, the power of prayer. And I have a very strong faith that no matter what I, what obstacles come my way, I will get through it because faith is always stronger than fear. Yes, for sure. Talk about organizations helping cancer survivors uh, going through phase two, which is after treatment. There's a lot of organizations out there nowadays um, the very first one that ever helped me personally uh, was the organization Stupid Cancer. It's primarily for um, adolescents and young adults going through cancer treatment. It doesn't matter what type of cancer you have, but they really focus on that life after treatment, that thriving, you know, navigating life afterwards. Uh, there are organizations like um, the Coalition Against Childhood Cancer, CAC2 that is working to, you know, change the world for cancer patients and survivors. Because again, they realize that cancer survivors are living longer, especially childhood cancer survivors. I'm 28 years old, 28 years out and 42 years old. There's not a lot of organizations out there for people my age that laid out. And CAC2 is starting to do things to change that. You have Prep for Gold, which is another organization that's really trying to put child cancer survivorship on the map to help things, you know, help us navigate survivorship. And, you know, what people don't realize is, you know, cancer doesn't just end with treatment. Right. You know, a lot of times we, you, they say, Hey, this is your last treatment. Congratulations. Go on with your life. Yeah. Well, I was in treatment for two and a half years. I had no idea how to be a normal teenager. I didn't know what a normal teenager was. So when you say go on with your life, I was kind of like, what? (laughs) I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how. And that happens to a lot of people because you've just gone through something so great. You may not want to be in the same job you once were. You don't, you're not the same person you were when you started treatment. It changes and you just have to learn how to do that. And thankfully now they're organizations who are realizing and giving survivors a voice. For people out there listening to this, what do you want them to know uh, about those living with childhood cancer? When they, when, when they see these pediatric cancer um, patients, what do you want them to, what do you want them to know? What do you want them to think about? You know, it, everybody always, you know, they see, these bald kids on TV all the time or or things like that. And these kids are so resilient. Um, You know, 
we live through so much. And again, like I just said, childhood cancer doesn't end when treatment ends. It's something we live with for the rest of our lives. And we live with the potential of late effects. My late effects didn't show up until eight years after I was diagnosed. Some people don't ever have late effects, but it's something that is constantly in the back of our mind from that standpoint. You know, it affects our relationships, our relationships with, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouses. It affects, you know, different things at different times. You know, one of the hardest things for me now is when I hear a friend of mine tell me they were just diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't matter what kind of cancer they had. I get this gut sadness to some degree in my feeling because I know what they're about to face. I, you know, I've heard the words you have cancer before, and those are words you never want to hear. And those are words you never want to hear your friends or family hear either. And so it's just something that as much as we don't want it to be there, to some degree, it is always in the back of our mind, whether we like it or not. Talk about uh, Ali, your husband, meeting him, and uh, how's that? How that come about? So I was working in a nursing home at the time uh, as the recreational therapy director, uh-huh. and he works in IT, and he was doing consulting work in the IT department. Uh, I thought he was cute. So I asked our IT lady, you know, you know, what's his name? What's his deal? Is he single kind of thing? And she told me, yeah, he's single. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, that's cool. Yay. Um, and at the time, you know, I was bringing my dog to work. Her name was Velvet. And, you know, I would oftentimes just because my office was in the hallway with all the other offices would just let her wander that hallway. She would not really wander that far. And so I kind of used her to, be, to go wander into his, the room where he was working. You can't go wrong. Uh, Carolyn, you can't go wrong using the dog. There's no and way. I wanted to know if he liked dogs. You know, that was a yeah. big thing for me. He did. Um, and because of my, you know, treatment and the whole, like, go after the opportunities, I was always the one asking guys out. And so it came time to it. And I, I was the one who did the asking. I said, hey, you know, do you want to go out? And he said, yes. Um, surprisingly. And, you know, and, you know, it's been what, 11 years later, and, you know, we're still together. We've been happily married for five years. And, you know, I've always teased him um, when it came to getting engaged. I said, it's a good thing I asked you out because if I hadn't, I probably would have asked you to marry me. (laughs) Well, I'm glad everything worked out well on that. Carolyn, how about some words of wisdom for people out there with and without cancer going through struggles? What can you tell them? You know, you can only see a rainbow after a storm. So no matter what you're going through in life, there's always something to live for. Life is worth living. And, you know, in the deepest moments of the depression that I was going through, you know, I had to constantly remind myself, you know, life is worth living. There's always somebody who is going to miss you. There is always somebody that you don't realize the lives you are affecting every day. And don't give up hope. You know, there is always someone who is better off because you're in their lives. You know, a smile goes a long way. Um, and, you know, if you know somebody who's going through it, you know, we may not acknowledge the fact that you're trying to help because we don't know how to acknowledge that. 
but just do simple things. Just, you know, send a card, send a note, say hi, you know, anything to help people going through a hard time um, because it's those little things that help us get through it. Excellent advice. Carolyn, where can people contact you if they want to get a hold of you? They want to maybe some advice, some inspiration, whatever. How can they get a hold of you? Uh, the best way is through my website, www.leukemiagirl.com. Um, that has all the information. It has my email address. It has information on my book and it has more information regarding my story. Um, so my website, leukemiagirl.com is the best way to contact me. Okay, great. I want to thank you uh, for sharing your story with us. And I wish you and Lee all the best going forward. Comments and suggestions uh, for the podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page and group, It's a Wrap with Rap. Our Facebook group is advancing greatly. Uh, we're almost up to 900 people. Instagram, uh, It's a Wrap with Rap podcast. We're on YouTube. All the episodes are on YouTube. It's a Wrap with Rap, the podcast uncut. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>